Um, I have been blessed, though, recently with the, the outcry. Sometimes when you don't do it, you realize how much you should be doing it because it's a pretty big outcry for people who really want this Ephesians. Because uh, even on the road in these trips, especially the last three, we've heard so many people are so locked in on this journey and having a good time. So, um, so let's not uh, leave them disappointed. Ephesians, the sixth chapter, is where we have landed it took us quite a while to get to this place. Most of you, if you've read ahead, you know that the bulk of this chapter is the whole armor of God. Now, that doesn't start until verse 10. We're in verse 1, so, you know, don't get your hopes up uh, that we'll be there anytime soon. I, I do know that we will not get there in the next two lessons uh, because there are two basic things that happen between here and there. One is an admonition to children and their parents and fathers towards their children. And then there's the admonition of slaves and masters, masters and slaves. When we were back in the marriage passage of chapter 5, I made the comment that, well, I dealt a lot with the slavery issue in, in perspective of the fact that it existed in Paul's day. Paul deals with it, but Paul doesn't, Paul kind of disappoints us because he doesn't preach against it. It's not, we don't have this chapter where Paul goes, you know, someday this is going to cease to exist. This is a terrible thing. Everybody's equal in God's eyes. You've got to go actually grab some Paul from like Galatians to come up with the fact that there's neither bond nor free. Um, and I told you then we won't deal a whole lot with the slavery passage when we get to it because of that. Um, but I still feel like it, that whole segment needs its own week, if for nothing else, to address the issue that some things are there in the Word that we get to wrestle with in our context versus their context. We'll do that next week. But in a way, we're going to do that a little bit tonight because we're going to find a little bit of... Uh, we're going to find a moment with Paul and we're going to compare it to a moment with Jesus and we're going to try and land on where we need to land, especially in light of the fact that they don't always sound alike. So what do we do with that? What do we do when Jesus sounds one way and Paul sounds another? And we'll talk about what we can do with that overall but we'll also talk about what we ought to do within this passage, because I actually think this, the scriptures are unique. I think that you've got to take each case as it comes. These blanket statements about the Bible don't always work. I know they, they're easier to just say them, but you've got to get into the individual scripture. You've got to see what's going on. So, so we'll do that. Um, Ephesians 6 is a moment right out of the block, right out of the gates, that really helps us understand that this is not a book and this isn't unique to Ephesians. You could say this about all the books. These are not books that were meant to be read and studied. And I don't mean that we shouldn't study them. But they were books that were written to be read out loud. So when, when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he wasn't writing a book. He was writing a letter. Like you'd write a letter to a friend that really matters to you. A friend that maybe you're a mentor of. Someone that you're trying to lead and guide and help. So you're addressing their issues and you have the right to speak into their life. You're not some stranger. So you're saying things are a little more personal. You're, you're a little more brazen. You're a little more bold. Um, you might even be a little more loving because you can be because it's someone you can say I love you to. It's someone you can say it without it seeming odd. You get all of that in Paul's letters. But in this moment, because he addresses this straight to children, this is one of your first hints or one of your most obvious hints that the people he's addressing are never going to read this. They're only going to hear it because children couldn't read. So out of, the, out of the beginnings of this sixth chapter, he addresses children. None of them are going to sit down and read Ephesians. That doesn't mean that they ha aren't going to have it read to them. And we do not know what church looked like 
in the first century. I mean, we don't really know what they were doing. We get a little bit from the book of Acts. They were definitely sharing the Lord's Supper, but they were probably eating a full meal. They definitely weren't eating a little wafer in a cup. They were eating a full meal. They were singing, they were praying, and they were teaching. But all they had was the Old Testament, and so they were having to pull Jesus from those texts. And maybe they're, if they're the original 12, they're teaching what they heard Jesus say, what they saw Jesus do. So we don't know what was going on in the service. By the time Paul starts to write these letters, what we assume is that people would gather in rooms like we gather, and they would say, we got a letter from Paul. And that'd be an exciting thing. And you would read it out loud. And I would imagine you would read it again and again and again. You would probably read it every time you got together for a while. And you would probably get to where you read little paragraphs. Hey, next week, let's read this paragraph and let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. And, and no doubt there was correspondence back from Paul. But I don't think Paul thought he was being canonical. I don't think Paul sat down and wrote and said, this stuff is going to reach the other side of the world in the 21st century. And, and I'm not meaning that, the, that he didn't think he was writing for posterity. I do think he thought he was writing for posterity, but I don't think he thought he was writing the codes of Christianity, like the way the church was going to live throughout time. And so... I, I, I say that to you not so that you will ignore Paul, so that you'll go, well, hey, if he didn't think he was writing canon, then who cares? You know, we, no, but so that you will realize that you, you need to bring your brain to the table when you read. You don't need to just, you say, well, they, they, they wrote it. I don't even have to think about it. Boom. No, we, we bring ourselves to the hearing in the same way the audience would have brought themselves to the hearing and then we work with it. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's look at the first three verses tonight in a lesson we're going to call the commandment with promise. You're going to find out why pretty quickly right out of the gate when we read this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Once again, children aren't reading this letter. So they're having it read out loud to them. This might be the closest thing to Sunday school in the first century. It's just kids sitting in the room with their parents and they listen. And I'm not saying that people didn't repeat it in homes or maybe even jot it down but it definitely wasn't some widely produced pamphlet. So they're hearing him say, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Note the quotes around the phrase, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you. Quotes again, verse three, quote marks, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. You'll note you got two sets of quotes separated by which is the first commandment with the promise. There's our title. Our title's in the middle of two quotes. And of course, as you know, the quote mark means Paul's pulling previous material. Something that they've read before, something they've heard before. And it's pretty obvious what he's pulling in the first one. Honor the father and the mother. And in case you did miss where that's from, he actually uses the word commandment in there. It's his first commandment with promise. And so, yes, Paul is reaching back into the fifth commandment of the original Ten Commandments. There's not going to be a Jew in the house, in any house that reads this letter that doesn't know that. that in fact, they have it written over the doorposts of their homes. They have it in little, some, depending on how pious they are as a Jew, they have it in little boxes that they keep on their wrist as little wristbands. Sometimes they would even etch it onto headbands so that when you saw them, you could read the commandments of God over their, over their head. So the commandments were... I'm, they were everywhere. That, that was the core of the life of the Jewish man and woman and the children. It was the first thing that you would have memorized. Um, a couple of things before we really 
kind of dig into the body of this because you know we got to go backwards to go forward. If you're going to use quotes, we're going to go show you in a moment. But before we do, um, this just kind of stood out at me today, the phrase, this is right. Um, it's the same word that is often used in the New Testament for just or often used in the New Testament for righteous. And so it's really, it's not Paul just saying it's right versus the wrong thing. That's kind of the way we talk. It's the right thing to do versus the wrong thing to do. It's really more Paul saying it's the, it's the righteous thing to do. It's an expression of your rightness. It's an expression of your righteousness. And we know he doesn't mean for it to have an ex- expiration date on it because it sounds like children obey your parents. Well, I don't, I don't obey my parents. I'm 46 years old. I don't call my parents and go, hey, is it okay if I do this this week? You know, neither do you. That's, that, so, but the fact that Paul doesn't stop there, but then pulls in honor your father and mother and then connects a promise tells us that Paul's trying to get past an expiration date. So whereas we don't obey our parents in the sense of a little child obeys, Paul wants to make sure that the, uh, the idea of honoring never ends so that we don't stop honoring mom and dad even though we don't obey mom and dad. And of course, there's a distinct difference. You're not obeying your parents as you did when you were a kid, but hopefully you're honoring your parents. In fact, you sort of graduate from obeying your parents as a child to honoring your parents as an adult. And we do it, if we're in healthy relationships, we do it almost naturally to where we go from obeying to honoring. With all that said, I would do most anything my dad told me to do. And he lives halfway across the country and we talk on the phone all the time, but I don't see him every day. But if he said, hey, I'd like for you to do this, I'd probably bend over backward to do it. But that's not an obedience thing as much as it's an honor thing. So, and, and I know most everybody in here is that way. You would say, I would do what I had to do, whatever I could do, because I can do it. Now, I'm not motivated by law to do that for my dad or my mom. My mom called, I need you to do this, I'll do it. Same thing, mom or dad. But I'm not, I'm not obligated by law. I don't, I don't feel like the Holy Spirit has this law he's pressed upon me to do, and yet I live this out. And so... In some ways, maybe we should consider the commandments that way from, a, from an expression of, I'm trying to say this right without muddying it too much. We, we, we get into it a lot about the Ten Commandments, whether or not the Ten Commandments are for the Christian, and we're going to show you tonight the, the liberty that's ours in Christ because of grace. Um, and no, we don't live the law. We certainly don't live the law for righteousness. We don't live the law to be good people. We don't live the law to be right. But we live out love towards our neighbor because we are righteous. And so honoring of the parents, one of the Ten Commandments, is one of those things that you and I do, but none of us really put a lot of thought into it. We don't do it because we're scared to break the law of God. Same reason I don't murder I don't, mur- I, don't, I don't avoid murder because I'm scared of the Ten Commandments. Um, I don't avoid adultery because I'm scared of breaking the Ten Commandments. In fact, I don't walk around thinking about it. But there is a culture of being a righteous person, being a righteous man, being a righteous woman, that brings out in us 
the expressions of our faith. And I think a little bit of that is happening here with Paul. But let's go grab the source of the command. Before you do, go one more time, go back. Just want to make sure you get the, the right wording. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, which literally means it's the first of the 10 that has a promise attached to it. Okay, let's read the command with its promise. Exodus 20 and 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Do you notice any differences? I mean, honor your father and mother was there, right? That was pretty, pretty straight up. But Paul didn't, Paul didn't quote the whole thing. Now, when we get into partial quotes, we do this a lot in the Bible. We get into partial quotes. Sometimes it's because it's coming out of the Septuagint versus coming out of the Hebrew. But a lot of times it's because that person that is quoting has a reason for what it is that they're doing. Let's investigate that. Paul drops the land promise from his quote. What did it say? Honor your father and mother, you may remain long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So he got a couple arguments. You could argue that he just didn't need it for his purpose. Like, he doesn't need to talk about the land. He's talking about honoring your father and mother. But he attached the promise on purpose. He said this first commandment with a promise. So why didn't he give you the whole promise? So the counter argument might be, Paul interprets the land inheritance as being in Christ. Now, I'll save that last sentence for just a moment. Let me talk about that land promise. I've said that to you six or eight times over the course of five years, probably in, this, in these lessons or in our monthly meetings. But I, it's worth saying in this plot, okay, that there are no... There is no repetition of what is the most prominently promised individual thing of the Old Testament. There's no repetition of it in the New. The most prominently promised thing in the Old Testament is the land. I'll give you the land. I'll give your children the land. They'll have an inheritance. It will be yours. You get to the New Testament, disappears. Jesus doesn't mention it. You get into the Gospels, all through the Gospels, you get into Acts, you get into Romans. You get through all of Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters, James's letter, and the Revelation, and we don't have God saying anything to the Christian people about the land, and we don't have God saying anything through Jewish Christian writers about the land. And this has been a source of a lot of strain for some scholars who want to grab the land promises of the Old Testament and translate them over into physical property on the planet today, either for the nation of Israel or for some future people, some future inheritance. And yet you don't have any of those things being talked about in the New, but you do have the New Testament writers intentionally focusing all of the promises onto Jesus. Paul goes to great lengths in that great 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All the promises of God are in Christ, and they are yes and they are amen to the glory of His name. And so the closest we get is Romans where Paul talks about Abraham being an inheritor of the world, which is bizarre because God never told him he'd get the whole world. He told him he'd get as far as he could see. And so if anything, Paul expands the boundaries from a piece of property to the whole planet, if, if, if anything. But I, d I don't think it's worth a whole hour, but I did think it was worth the whole two minutes. And, I, and, I, and I, if for no other reason, maybe it inspires someone to go dig in the New Testament and to come up with your reasons why. 
these New Testament writers who were raised on a book, the Old Testament, that talks about the land, the land, the land, the land, and then the New Testament writers are just silent about it. And I'll just give you a hint. I think the wrong answer is, well, they're Christians, and the Christians weren't promised a land, and so they don't even bring it up. And I think it's the wrong answer because they were Jews who had accepted their Messiah. (laughs) They didn't think of themselves as no longer Jewish. They were Jewish people who had found their Savior. If anything, their land should be next. Unless they saw their land in their Savior. Okay, that's where I'll land on that. You do with it as you will. Search it out. Whatever. But that last sentence, this is not the only thing he dropped from the text. Well, of course it's not. There's a whole bunch of commands. There's a bunch of stuff we could talk about. But that's not what I mean. What I mean is if you were to jump ahead a whole chapter into Exodus 21, you come back to the father and mother motif. Exodus 21, 17. He who, here's the opposite of the commandment. He who curses his father and mother shall surely be put to death. So not only does Paul not quote the land part in Ephesians 6, he doesn't bother to quote the converse, the flip side, the curse to the blessing. He doesn't say, honor your father and mother, first commandment with promise so you can live long on the earth. By the way, don't honor your father and your mother. It's a command with a curse. And the curse is you're going to die, which is about as bad as a curse gets. Right? I mean, there's a lot of things you could be cursed with. Death seems to be the worst one of all the possible worst ones. Paul leaves it out. Now, surely Paul knows it's there. I mean, he's pretty much a genius of the law. I mean, by all in, in accounts, probably one of the most educated men in the world of his day in regards to Torah. You can't argue that he's the smartest, but he's got to be up there. And he's definitely the most qualified of the apostles. Paul, it's, you can make a pretty good case that the conversion of Paul is partially to stop the, pers- the mass persecution going on in the earliest church, partially to give a mouthpiece um, to the Gentiles, but you can probably make the argument that Paul lends intellectual credibility to the early church like no other person. We've got fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, a couple of day laborers. That's the guys that follow Jesus. We're not even sure if they're literate. They're an uneducated rabble. Paul comes along and he's outside of that group, but he brings all this gravitas to the table. So he definitely has the pedigree to know what he's talking about. So I don't think he just forgot. I don't, think he, I don't think he puts it out there and goes, well, you know, oh, yeah, well, that's got a curse. And I also don't think he's trying to be tricky. Like, I know it's in there, but I'm not going to put the curse in there because, you know, I just don't want to bring it up. We're, we're just going to have a positive letter because if you've ever, ever read Paul, he doesn't shy away from controversy. So what's the reason he leaves it out? Well, it's probably this from Galatians 3. And I know you know this. But you need the context because it's awesome and you need to go over it again and again and again in your life because if you don't, you're susceptible to going under whatever the law wants to throw your way because we are a law people. And we think it's do good and get good 
And we'll go right back to that because we sort of have Puritan heritage. Like we're supposed to do good things and if we do, God will bless us. And if we don't. So you need to reread this once in a while. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which is written in the book of the law to do them. So even if you didn't have Exodus 21, 17, that you're cursed if you don't honor your mother and your father, you still get this because Deuteronomy told us that if you don't do all the stuff that's in here, you're cursed anyway. Okay, so even without Exodus 21, Paul definitely knows that there's a curse attached to the doing or the not doing of the law. Verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident because the Bible says the just shall live by faith. Okay, so obviously even the Old Testament knew you weren't going to be able to be justified by the law. Otherwise, the Old Testament wouldn't have said the just shall live by faith. Which is an interesting thing. I, 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 I'm... I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but this is definitely worth saying. Um, no person can read the Old Testament cover to cover and actually walk away with the idea, if, they, if they're honest, if they actually read it, they can't walk away with the idea that if they keep the law, they'll be righteous. Because the just shall live by faith was in the Old Testament before it was in the New Testament. But what happens is the law becomes so overwhelming and so powerful that it's an addictive drug that if you keep any of it, you feel so pious and righteous, like you did something right. And then there's so much more of it coming at you. And you just, it's like we take on even more. And so the Old Testament law was never meant to make anyone righteous. This is Paul's plain statement. No one's justified by the law. That should be evident because the Old Testament says the just shall live by faith. So before you ever even got out of the Old Testament, you should have realized, man, it's never going to make me right if I could do all that. Because the just are supposed to live by faith, not by what they do. Okay, so we didn't change when people say things, and we, we think this is real gracie to say this, things changed under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, you were righteous if you could keep the law, but under the new covenant, you're righteous because of faith. No, you were always supposed to be righteous by faith. That was Abraham. The law wasn't given to make people righteous. Even when God gave it, it wasn't meant to make people righteous. It was the hymn you in, teach you how to love your neighbor. But the minute you get law, you make it out to make yourself righteous. You start to think, oh, this is it. And that leads to idolatry in which you're the idol. Selfishness versus selflessness. And we pile more and more of it on. So Paul's already combating that by going, look, no, you can't justify by the law. Just lives by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. Yet the law is not of faith. Of course it's not. Because you don't have to have faith to be obedient. You just got to be obedient. So if it says thou shalt not steal, you don't have to believe it. Just quit stealing. I mean, God's not asking you to believe in him. He's just telling you to quit taking your neighbor's stuff. So if you take your neighbor's stuff, you broke it. You can believe in God and take your neighbor's stuff. And you broke the law of taking your neighbor's stuff. And there was a curse attached to taking your neighbor's stuff. You could not believe in God, but not take your neighbor's stuff 
and you got the blessings of a community that didn't kick you out, that took care of you. So righteousness was always by faith. Community was a part of the law experience. The law doesn't need your faith. The man that does them lives in them. So live the law, don't live the law, but you can't mix living the law with faith in God and believe that living the law and faith then make you right or righteous. I know it's just a, that's a crash course. That's a, that's a 101 course on why this text matters because of course it's leading into the two verses that matter for our purposes. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Did you guys get a chance to listen to the great physician? The message we put up last Sunday. This is the message in this season of my life. That's the one. You want to know where I am? Where I'm going? Great physician. The idea that Jesus, and I'm saying that so that anyone watching this that hasn't heard that will go listen to that. Um, it is the most important thing that I'm walking out at this season of my life. And part of that message uses that text. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Because Jesus goes to the cross and he becomes, in his own words to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So when he goes to the cross, Jesus sees himself as the snake hanging on the tree. The snake is the thing that is cursed. It is the thing that curses you. It's the thing that bites you. Jesus takes into him the curse when he goes to the cross. And that's the way he looks at it. Not from God, but takes into him the curse that's in us. Into himself at Calvary as the snake. So that we look up like, the, like they did in the wilderness. They got snake bite. They look up at the snake on a pole. Doesn't make any sense. Look at a snake on a pole. I'm going to get delivered a snake bite. Thus is, the st- thus is the scandal of the cross. Like I'm supposed to be saved because a guy died 2,000 years on a cross? Welcome to faith. You see what's wrong with you in him. And as you see in him that what's wrong with you has been killed, then you can step into his death so that you can step into his resurrection. And, ju- and looking at that snake on the pole is the medicine you need for the poison that's in you. And so part of what we brought out in The Great Physician is that most of us have come up under a grace message that is entirely legal. Judicially, you are forgiven, redeemed, righteous, justified, sanctified. All these legal terms. Boom, gavel dropped, not guilty. Amen. Thank God. However, you need a doctor. You've had a lawyer. Lawyer Jesus, not guilty. You need a doctor, Dr. Jesus, that goes, you got hurt, you got wounded, you're in pain, you got darkness in your heart, you got stuff, people, people broke your limbs and they didn't set back right and it's affecting your walk and it's affecting how you treat your neighbor and it's affecting your marriage and it's affecting how you raise your kids and it's affecting how you deal with your next door neighbor and that rage that's inside of you, it has a trigger point and I know where it is and I want to go to work on it. And that's Dr. Jesus who comes to your house and lives in your house. And anytime you'll let him, we'll go to work on all your stuff. And, and that needs said. <laughs> it needs said over and over and over lest we think this whole thing's just judicial. Well, I'm not guilty. Nothing wrong. I'm not guilty of sin. Of course you're not guilty. 
Jesus has already paid your price for guilt. But you might have a broken leg. That's why you keep dragging it around and going in circles in your life. Because you haven't been set in the proper love of God. You haven't let his peace take over that area of your life. And he's, he's a good doctor, but he's also not going to hold you down and administer the shot. He's not going to abuse you. He's not going to make it. You're going to have to take his hand. You're going to have to yoke together with me. Watch how I do it. I'll, I'll do the pulling. You just, but you got you to move your feet. <laughs> I'm not just going to drag you down this row. You and I yoke together for a common purpose. I, I threw all of that in just because it's the thing that's on my mind the most, the most, the most lately. And I, wanted, I just want you to hear me say it out loud and know that I'm going to come back to it over and over and over again. Because I'm out there saying these things the Lord is showing me or, or, the, or preaching out the things that are important to me, relevant to me. But when I get with the groups that I'm with every week, that's to me where it really gets to take root and I get to learn something about it. Okay, sharing it with you. So um, examine that if you haven't. A great physician. If you have, examine it again. It's, it's really worth hearing again to see where are you in this journey. Now, I, I bring that up because this is part of that text. Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And it's parenthetical for Paul. He throws it, we throw it in parentheses because it's a sidebar. He's just trying to explain, he's quoting Deuteronomy, that curses everything that hangs on a tree. So that the blessing of Abraham, here's why he cursed everything that hangs on a tree. So that the blessing of Abraham gets to come upon us, Gentiles, in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, curses everyone that hangs on a tree. Do you know now why Paul drops the curse from Ephesians 6? Honor your father and mother, this command, first commandment with promise, so you may live long upon the earth. And he doesn't quote the curse because Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law. So I'm not going to go throw the curse back on you in a text so that you feel like, oh my gosh, if I'm going to obey my father and mother, I'm under the curse. That would be Paul preaching against Paul. And there's moments where Paul bumps up against preaching against Paul, but never that blatant, never a direct opposite quoting of scripture. Which brings us to this moment. Matthew chapter 15, verse one. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, well, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Stay here for a moment. I want you to notice in verse two that they're asking why the disciples transgress the tradition of the elders. Jesus responds, why do you transgress the commandment of God through your tradition? This is some shade Jesus is throwing. He goes, listen, you guys are mad because we don't wash our hands. And that's something you came up with that you thought was a great idea. But I got something better. Why is it that you actually transgress the commandment of God through the tradition you do? Let me point out what tradition I'm talking about. By the way, the tradition he's talking about is not washing hands. He's got something way bigger than that. Okay, the tradition that Jesus is bothered by starts in verse 4. For God commanded saying, honor your father and mother. Exodus 20. And he who cursed his father and mother, let him be put to death. Exodus 21. Paul leaves it out. Jesus puts it in. Hmm. Interesting. 
But you say, because we've got to deal with the whole thing. Can't just leave that hanging out there. Let's deal with the whole story. You say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. And then you don't need to honor your father or your mother. Thus, you've made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. In other words, there was an idea. In their culture, in the, in the Jewish culture, you were to provide for your adult parents until they died. Right? No one else was to do that. You were to do that. But the elders had come up with a tradition that if what you were going to spend on your parents was designated to be donated to the work of the Lord, then you didn't have to spend it on mom and dad. Jesus finds this tradition to be pretty outlandish and says, so you guys have decided that as long as you designate it to God, then you don't have to do the thing to honor your mother and father. And this is sort of a way of saying, you don't get off the hook dedicating things to the Lord, but refusing to take care of your family. Okay. And I, man, I wish I, I wish some preachers in my life when I was young had known about this. Because that eight nights a week in church business I grew up under for a long time, somebody needed to quote, hey, quit dedicating every night to the Lord and running family off a church after a generation Mm -hmm. and then calling it God. Because just because you say it's for the Lord doesn't mean it's for the Lord. And And in a way, what is for the Lord is often people just running from that guy to go, I don't want to serve that God. If I got to do, this is what I got to do. My gosh, everything for the Lord. Um, so that's for each person to work out on their own. Um, that's not really even the point of this, but I can't put that up there and not, you know, not say that. Did I give you seven, eight, nine on this? Yeah, I didn't really need this, but I wanted it up there anyway, just to finish the story. Hypocrites! I was like, when Jesus goes to him, hypocrites! Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, their heart is far from me, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so that closes the case on Jesus' little argument with them about whether they should wash their hands before they eat versus honoring father and mother. But that's not my point. That just couldn't do it that story justice without finishing it. The point, of course, is that Jesus, contrary to what Paul will do, quotes both Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. Honor your father and mother. If you don't, there's a curse attached to you, you're going to die. So what do we do with this? That's that fourth verse. Show me that one more time. God commanded, honor your father and mother. He puts them both in the same sentence. And he who curses father and mother, let me put to death. All right. Jesus adds the curse. And just for your reference, I put them up there again. 2117. To the fifth commandment, Chapter 20, verse 12. Why is this there in Jesus' teaching, but absent from Paul's? This is a moment where it is justifiable to examine the Jesus was in an old covenant world argument. Okay. Because Christ had yet to redeem them from the curse of the law. That's coming up in Galatians 3. He's yet to die at Calvary. He's yet to redeem them from the curse of the law. And in his earthly ministry, he's showing them the dangers attached to breaking the law because they've brought law at him. So you want to bring law to Jesus? Jesus goes, okay, bring law to me. I got one better. You're bringing me traditions of men. Let me bring you dad's commandment. So it's really Jesus trumping the traditions of men with the tradition of God, which is, of course, always the traditions of men are going to lose. 
and they're breaking the ones that matter while trying to uphold these silly ones they've made up for themselves. And so Jesus, living prior to Calvary, has not redeemed the world from the curse of the law, is a Jewish man prior to redeeming the world from the curse of the law. And if you bring law to Jesus, he brings law right back to you. Rich young ruler, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what about the commandments? And the ruler goes, well, I've done those because he asked, what good thing must I do? I am a legalist in a legalistic world. Give me a list of legalisms. And Jesus goes, let's start with the Ten Commandments. Oh, I got those nailed. To which the Bible says, and then Jesus loved him. Which is kind of a way I think of Jesus smiling and going, oh, kid. Okay. I'll give you that. You kept those. Go sell everything you got. Come follow me. Because we're about to find out you're not keeping them as well as you think you are. You got a God, you got an idol, you just haven't put a name on it yet. So I'll help you find him. Go sell everything you got, come follow me. And the Bible says the young man couldn't do that because he had great wealth. There's the answer. Because he had great wealth, he was afraid to lose the one thing that defined him. That's all Jesus ever asked you to do. Lose whatever it was (laughs) that held you back from following him. In this young man's case, it was money. Which leads to the great, you know, easier for a camel, such and so, I have a needle. You know the story. Jesus hasn't went to the cross. Jesus has not yet redeemed from the curse of the law. So that's part of it. But I put Jesus in an old covenant world argument because I got to address that. Um, my grace, friends, we got to go back to Jesus. We've been infatuated with Paul. Paul's brilliant. Paul gives us the answer to the judicial argument of sin. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus was not spewing old covenant principles and can thus be ignored. Jesus is the walking embodiment of the new covenant living in an old covenant world. And sometimes he has to play by old covenant rules. Sometimes you want to bring old covenant law to him, he's going to bring you the whole thing. That's that story. Sometimes he heals a leper and he goes, hey, go back to the temple and show Moses, show the temple that you've been healed and observe Moses' law of cleansing. He had to do that. He's a good Jewish man living in an old covenant world. If, if you get healed today, do you have to go do the purification, the water purification of the Old Testament? No, you're a new, a new covenant healing wouldn't require that. Jesus had healed someone under the Old Covenant. They were a Jewish man. They had to go observe lest they be offensive to their world. So yes, Jesus is a new covenant man in an Old Covenant world. And there are times when Jesus has to play according to those rules. But stop taking the words of Jesus and downplaying them because Jesus says them to an Old Covenant audience. We spent, what, six, eight months a year on the Sermon on the Mount in here? To me, the Sermon on the Mount is life-changing stuff. I had a hard time with the Sermon on the Mount, teaching it to you guys. Not because the material was over my head, but because I didn't like a lot of it. Because I would dig in with Jesus during the week and go, oh, I don't know how if I want to teach this. This is big stuff. Like... You got to live this. If I take you serious, then I really have to think about this. 
And this doesn't come natural to me. And it's a whole lot easier because this is how we're teaching it. It's a whole lot easier to just go, that's Jesus teaching the old covenant to an old covenant world to try and exhaust them on the old covenant by showing them they can't live it so that they'll turn to him. But actually, in reality, it's Jesus, Mr. New Covenant, revealing the constitution of the kingdom of God. Here's how we love people. All you've had is the law to tell you how to love people. I'm going to expand it. The law lets you stop at your neighbor. I'm going to make you love your enemy. No, he's not showing you the depth of the law. He's showing you the constitution of the kingdom. So we have to get out of this mode that we can ignore Jesus because Paul wrote something. And if we don't understand Jesus, we can just run over to Paul. Paul's complementary to what we see in Jesus, but he's subordinate to what we see in Jesus. He has to be subordinate to Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. <laughs> Christ is who we follow. Christ is our Redeemer, so we go to Christ first. We don't go to Christ last and just try to figure out maybe what Jesus might have thought of it. We start with Jesus and we let everything else complement Jesus. It all gets pulled back to the center pole that is Christ. So that takes us to this. You fathers, this is back to Ephesians 6.4. You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. I, I, there's a lot I would love to say, but I, I'm just going to stick with the screen I have next, and then we're going to land on something else that is a part of this from the Old Testament. And that's this. Fathers are told actually what Paul's saying is, just don't be unreasonable with your kids. <laughs> this is just me poking, okay? So this is me poking right here. That's all this is. What about mothers? Paul's silence here shows us the cultural patriarchy. You should have caught that in chapter 5 because the culture is a patriarchy. And Paul speaks to that patriarchy, not to stop it, but to try and, well, let's say it this way. The father was in charge of the household. Paul doesn't push against this. He just leans into it. If we stay too rigid here, we have no idea what's expected of mothers. We could even come up with the assumption that because the Bible doesn't say anything, that it doesn't really matter. Um, the reason I put this about being rigid is really to lead us into next week. Because next week is masters and slaves. Slaves and masters. If we're too rigid on that next section, then we're pretty much going to end up thinking maybe we need to return to slavery. Because, you know, there's several verses in Ephesians 6 that deal with slavery. So maybe we should go back to it. So Paul's not trying to establish that dads do all the child rearing or the raising. But he's leaning into the idea, the, the, the patriarchal idea of his day. So that leads me to this final thought. What would it look like to bring up your kids in the training and admonition of the Lord? Should they learn the Ten Commandments? Should they have to read the Bible every day? Should you make them go off and pray every morning? I don't tell parents how they ought to raise their kids. I had someone ask me this week, what, it was a young man with, with little kids, and he said, what a piece of advice would you give me in raising children to try and raise them right in the Lord? And my piece of advice I gave him was what I've given so many others because I don't really feel qualified. I mean, I raised two kids. Natasha had a lot to do with that. So who am I to say what would work and what wouldn't work? But what I do know that I focused on from a young age is training your children to follow the Holy Spirit and give them every opportunity to do that by letting them fail and then reverse engineer all of their failures. So go to the failure and go back 
and let's spot the moment where you thought better of this. And if you didn't have that moment, then we need to, that's where we need to concentrate. And if you did, is it possible that was the first moment in your life you heard the Holy Spirit talk? I remember the first time I had that conversation with my son and it was the, his first real obvious big moment of failure. And I just reverse engineered it. I went all the way back and I said, at that moment right there, did you think maybe I shouldn't do this? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, that was the, that was the first moment in your life. You clearly heard the Holy Spirit. You just didn't know it. Okay. So that was what he sounded like. And you've been confused that hearing from God means you're going to hear an audible voice. But you, you heard it right there and you confused it with something else. And that was the Holy Spirit who will never lead you into the rocks. So that wasn't just you being smart enough to know what to do. That was the Holy Spirit speaking. So start there. So give them opportunity. And then you pray as a parent because it's more than just putting a roof over their head and providing a paycheck. You pray about the opportunities that, where you have to take your hands off where you have to pull the legalism back, the legal fences back, even though you don't want to because you live in a world that tells you your job as a parent is to keep your kids safe. I disagree. I think your job is to make your kids strong. Strong's better than safe any day. Besides, you're gonna fail if you just try to keep your kids safe. They're not gonna be safe and then they're not gonna be strong. It'd be better to make them strong and not as safe. And so if that's the way we raise our kids, they, they're strong in the, in the Lord, the power of his might. That's where we're heading for. And so they learn to hear the Holy Spirit. Okay, but that's Paul White rambling. Let me give you some Bible. Good way to end. Genesis 18. Uh, this is the story of Abraham. And I promise it looks like we've got a whole big old story coming here. And we're going to be a long time, but we're really not. It's, three, it's 16 to 19. And this is just to qualify. Or this is just context to qualify the final verse. This is where God and two angels come to Abraham. They're about to go to Sodom. Okay. God goes, I'm going to go down and see what's up with Sodom. And of course, he ends up destroying it. The men rose up and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, this is God talking to himself. This is a cool moment in the book of Genesis. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing since Abraham has, shall surely become a great mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? 19. For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. God's definition of what Abraham has done to command his children and his household is to do righteousness and justice. So a Jewish mindset of what would it look like to raise our children with fear and admonition of the Lord is to do righteousness and justice. Live out the righteousness that you are and live justice on the earth. And it seems a pretty good place to start. That, that lands us back at Paul's fourth verse. Pro don't provoke him to wrath. Bring him up in training. Next week, we turn the page to bond servants. Fancy word for slaves. Um, in fact, I'm not, it, it, even if it's in the text, we're going to say slaves because that's what they were. There were bond servants, we'll explain. But it was a slave culture. And so we're going to talk about it next week. The commandment with promise. What I hope to accomplish tonight, just kind of go in, I try to go into every lesson and go, what do you hope to accomplish? What I hope to accomplish tonight is to start to break down some of this fencing that's been constructed in some of our grace communities between the Jesus of the Gospels 
and the Apostle Paul as if Jesus is this is living in an Old Testament world. And so, you, you, you know, you take his stuff with a grain of salt. You know, some of it's just not for you. And, and I think that's where you should, that's not where you should start. I mean, there's going to be moments. I showed you some pockets where you go, yeah, Jesus is definitely talking in an Old Covenant world. But maybe we, we start to break those down. And, and, and then also to realize that the promise attached to the commandment. Let's pray as a way of settling into our soul whatever the Holy Spirit wants to settle. Okay, that's really what these prayers are about. Settle into my spirit, whatever it is that you want to settle. Seed was thrown onto the ground tonight. Okay, so you let the Holy Spirit drop that into the soil of your heart. Father, we thank you. All we ever ask of you, Father, is that you go to work on us. We, we, I, we don't ask you. I don't ask you. Do all this tonight. Knock over everything in my life. Start the revolution. No, but Lord, I do know that there's just places and areas where I need you to take root. So whatever in this tonight shines a spotlight on Jesus and speaks to that area in our life that needs that Jesus, then let that root take let that seed take root and where it doesn't. Father, we we move on. And I pray the breakdown begin of this little barrier that's been built between our Jesus and the rest of the New Testament. Lord, may we realize May we, have a, may we have a revival of Jesus in our midst. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.